Hey Z, it's Brian over here at My Mental Download. Uh, gave a lot of thought to your assault rifle uh, dis uh, discussion. And so while it was, it does appear to have been very specific in the 40s with the Germans, uh, it did seem to be adopted by gun manufacturers in the 90s as a term uh, used to help, uh, you know, support uh, sales of military-style weapons. So um, the problem is, is I'm not really sure what a good word is because... Uh, semi-automatic rifle uh, with detachable clip uh, with possible folding stock, possible bayonet attachment, possible muzzle suppression, uh, possible flash suppression uh, is a bit long. Uh, so I'm curious to hear uh, how you, you would like to continue using this term uh, and would help with the discussion. Also, uh, just out of nowhere, the uh, term is vernacular. Thanks, man. Hey, Brian. Hope you're having a wonderful day. Now, let's make it clear, I'm not disputing that the term assault rifle is used. It's just a bad term. It's a semi-automatic. Let me also make clear that I don't think civilians should be able to own machine guns or be able to convert their guns into machine guns. Now, someone that legitimately has a military-style semi-automatic would be a collector. The 223 platform, which is the AR-15 platform, is very well suited for hunting. Um, and you can also change the calibers down to 22 all the way up to like 308. So it's a very versatile platform. And of course, here in America, we also have firearms for self-protection, for self-defense. Now, I've had the misfortune of actually having a... Uh, a home invasion uh, where firearms were involved, where I've had guns pointed to my head. Luckily, I was able to fight them off and no one got hurt or killed. And also remember, I'm a martial arts instructor. But I want to ask you this. If you had a home invasion, let's say you saw some guys, they're pulling up in a van and they're all coming out and they're about to invade your home, maybe uh, rape your wife and uh, take everything you own. But screw the possessions. So we, we, like, we don't care about the possessions. But what if they're there to rape your, your wife and kid? Um, how much firepower would you like? Would you like a uh, limited five round clip? Or would you perhaps go for a standard clip which holds like 30 rounds? Would you want a weapon that you could fight with? Or would you rather have a firearm that's suited for killing innocent animals? You see, animals don't shoot back. And I hope you're not one of those people that would just, well, pick up the phone and call the cops. Again, the scenario is you see the van pulling up and guys getting out with firearms. Oh, by the way, there's already somebody at the back door. Now, home invasion is a very real thing. You can look up the statistics online. It's happened to me twice in my lifetime. And also, as social and political uh, situations deteriorate, there's even a greater likelihood for these sorts of events to happen. Now, granted, some conditions are more conducive to home invasions than others, but... I wouldn't say everyone is absolutely immune. I mean, look up the guy that shot up the military base. And again, most of the gun statistics that are scaring people are really coming from gangs. Now, of course, there's the mass murderers, and mass murder gets a lot of attention. So I'll ask you this. Let's just say mass murder is, and it has always been, a fact of life. How would you like your mass murders to be performed? I mean, as Americans, our way of life already results in mass murder. So I ask you, which method of mass murder do you prefer? And again, it's a fact of life, so you can't not choose. And I think it's asinine to say that mass murder is wrong and that it shouldn't happen. Of course, of course. You shouldn't molest children. Uh, you shouldn't kick old ladies in the face. You shouldn't commit mass murder. 
I mean, when it happens and it kills thousands and it's done with bombs or chemicals, seriously, how would you prefer your mass murdering? Hey guys, um, it's me, Z, and um, I'm a little choked up right now because, and it's okay, it's, it's good. These are uh, good tears. Um, I just found a video that a guy put up and he's saying pretty much everything I'm saying, but he's saying it so well. And I'm just overwhelmed that someone is saying what I'm saying, but much better. And, um, well, without further ado, uh, check this out. Born too late to venture out into a world unknown, born too early to venture out into the unknown cosmos. Yet here we are in this interesting intermediate stage, laying out the framework for what we as a species will become, as we reach the climax to the most important stage in human history. But it will only work out once humanity makes it over its biggest hurdle yet, and potentially ever, itself. Humanity is our next frontier. We are all living in an era that has come into existence due to an astronomical amount of events, with probabilities so low, it's hard to fathom. But nonetheless, there were events that created our universe, that created our solar system, that allowed organisms to develop out of the chemistry on Earth's surface, to eventually having biology form sophisticated levels of intelligence, and having said intelligence think, interact, create, forming not only our biological identity, but our cultural one as well. Culture, for the most part, is a result of our human senses and desires being influenced by geography and directed by individuals. Clothing, art, cuisine, music, literature, architecture, activities, you name it. And being that we are all of the same species, we have the capability to share our own regional variations of these with one another, and boy have we done just that. And as a response to all of that, we have created technologies, trade systems, and governments. And as communities desire information, resources, or even labor from a given part of the world, we have shaped our technology, trade systems, and governments to make that possible and often more efficient. The aftermath of all of this advancement and efficiency has pulled the world together, making it a much more intertwined and connected place. Essentially globalizing many different aspects of the human experience and even influencing the movement of people themselves. The demands of the majority and most influential people have forced all of humanity to be involved with the different people from around the world. So much so that it's almost impossible for us to ignore one another anymore without difficulties or negative consequences. And this is in part thanks to the advent of globalization, which has been rapidly accelerating over the past 500 years, and especially the past 20, with the widespread introduction of the internet. Though one could argue it's been happening since the dawn of human civilization itself. We've come a long way, and quite honestly, it's both amazing and scary. But now more than ever are we dealing with the problems of globalization at a scale never seen before in human history. And our individual civilizations, cultures, and problems are being pulled together, creating a human civilization, a massive greater human culture, and making regional problems humanity's problems. And we see two opposing trends, those pushing for its success, and those fighting against it. Some would call it a clash of civilizations, but I would argue it's something bigger than that, something much more complex. For what it truly appears to be is a transition, a transition from a type zero civilization into a type one civilization. And you either make it or you break it. Whew, okay, hold up. That's neat and all and a little melodramatic, but so what? Space is humanity's next frontier, not humanity itself. That doesn't make much sense, right? Here's the thing. We are currently what is known as a Type Zero civilization. This coming from a scale developed by Russian astrophysicist Nikolai Kardashev, being the Kardashev scale. The concept behind this scale has gone on to be a model for more encompassing and recent scales, with the initial intent of being used for evaluating extraterrestrial civilizations that we could see in space, by means of evaluating their energy consumption capabilities. Partly because that is something we can see from a distance, and because it would imply a certain level of technological achievement. To break it down, a Type Zero civilization is a civilization with a rather stratified populace and obtains most of its energy through secondhand means, like oil and coal equivalents, being exactly what you see on Earth right now. 
Type 1 civilizations are planetary and have a means to gather all the energy on the surface of their planet through means of highly efficient green energies. They also have the ability to control aspects of nature like hurricanes and volcanoes and such. It also has a much more homogeneous population, and Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers would be good fictional examples of Type 1 civilizations. A Type 2 civilization would be stellar and have the capability to collect all the energy from its star. A good fictional example being Star Trek. A Type 3 civilization would be galactic and have the ability to gather energy from multiple stars, pretty much being able to harness power from an entire galaxy. There has even been proposals for Type 4 and 5 civilizations, with a Type 4 civilization being universal, a Type 5 being multidimensional, but I'm not going to get into that because it's really pushing the limit. I want to focus on current trends and implications of Earth transitioning from a Type 0 civilization to a Type 1 civilization. And this is where the discussion gets both interesting and extremely important. Within the past 100 years, we have seen some of the key aspects of a Type 1 civilization start to take shape. The most prominent being the rise of a Type 1 language and a Type 1 communication system being English and the Internet, respectively. I mean, the fact that I'm making this video in English in the middle of nowhere Maine for a global audience speaks tremendously about the legitimacy of all this. And the growth of these world communication systems that heavily complement each other, in light of a sophisticated global trade network, we have seen the rise of a Type 1 culture. I mean, what we call internet culture is truly the birth of a complex world culture that is extremely diverse and gargantuan. But what needs to be understood is, once you get the globe rolling with the establishment of Type 1 components, you set the stage for almost all of the other ones to be almost inevitable. Theoretical physicist Professor Michio Kaku has placed a tremendous amount of time evaluating trends with his and current models of this transition, with multiple publications to show for it. He discusses entities like the European Union being an early attempt at a Type 1 economy, all the way to things like association football, soccer, being Type 1 sports. Globalization and engagement of systems and culture all around the world contributing to this Type 1 civilization. Professor Michio Kaku has estimated that we will make the full transition within or around the next 100 years. But only if we make it through it. Yes, there are many trends that are pushing us towards this Type 1 civilization status, but also many that are pushing us away from it, ones that are quite dangerous. A push away from a Type 1 civilization is often a push against multiculturalism, secularism, human rights, and science in many respects often in an attempt to establish a fabricated legitimacy. A current prime example being ISIS, using terrorism in order to try to forcefully establish a type of theocracy known as a caliphate. But they have only been conditioned into existence due to the very problems that are pulling us apart. Some examples being the intentional destabilization of a region and providing weapons and resources to often dangerous and inconsiderate people. But on a bigger scale, you get problems like illegally annexing territory, internet censorship and restriction of freedom of speech, abuse of human rights and limited access to education, justifying theocracies, oppressing people of a specific sex, gender, sexual orientation, religion, or lack of religion, placing the interests of business and money over the well-being of people, and war. And I'm positive you can think of a number of countries causing these problems, whether it be the United States, China, Russia, North Korea, Israel, Saudi Arabia, you name it. Probably every single country is doing at least one. And it's because of this stuff, things in the eyes of many do not look good for humanity's future. And I think it's completely understandable why there would be pessimists and conspiracy theorists considering the lack of transparency, the lack of consideration, and the overall shadiness that does go around on the global theater. It's awkward, yes, especially with the intense nationalism and individuals who love propagating stuff. But, the reason why I have hope, and I believe we can make it through this, is because the first aspects of our human society to reach Type 1 status were not authoritarian governments, were not power-hungry businesses, or uncompromising religious or ideological groups. It was our communication. English and the internet give me hope that before we leave our solar system, we can direct the human civilization with information sharing and discussion to push for a world that will give us all the ability to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Part of me likes to think it's not just wishful thinking because we're discussing it right now. What we gotta do first is recognize our problems and evaluate what we gotta do. 
I mean, it's estimated that we will have a population on Earth of about 9 billion people by 2050, with India and Nigeria accounting for about 800 million people alone. Even countries like Afghanistan are expected to double in population by then. We have about 80 million people being born annually. And to top it all off, we gotta figure out what we're gonna do with all these people, especially in light of the next big technological boom is expected to involve advanced robotics and artificial intelligence systems that are going to eliminate many low-skilled jobs. CGP Grey discussed this in great detail in his video, Humans Need Not Apply, which I strongly recommend you watch if you haven't already, and heck, watch it again if you have, it's definitely worth it. Problems like that, coupled with things like climate change, famine, extreme poverty, and horrible leadership are going to cause a lot of problems in the future unless we start planning ahead big time. This transition into a type 1 civilization is becoming extremely relevant, and many people don't have a construct to attach that to, but hopefully it's something we can all latch on while we try to figure out what's going on. What is best for humanity is what the global discussion needs to be about, and luckily we're seeing it more and more, but it's also causing many stressors around the world. There are so many things to consider, and it's difficult for many of us to wrap our mind around all of it. Finding ways to ensure that people have access to the resources they need is easier said than done, but people are definitely tackling it all around the world from different angles. Something I would argue is one of the most important things is for us to invest money and time into education, especially in countries that are going to have the largest population growth in the next few decades. To provide an education that introduces people to concepts like personal financing, sex education, potentially computers and coding, English, and learning about the historical context of people around the world. To better understand each other. I understand it's going to be difficult, and many people are going to resent it, but we have to help as many people as we can. If we don't get involved in trying to improve the conditions of our human civilization, and have compassion and consideration for as many of us as possible, we will jeopardize everything. Okay, I understand this is getting a bit preachy, and trust me, I could go on all day about this, because it is so important, especially from an anthropological standpoint. This is the most important stage in human history, and it stinks having to be the stepping stone that figures out all the problems that have been building up over the past few hundred years. But it's a race against the clock, and it is not slowing down for us to figure it out. Humanity is our next frontier. As a final note, I would like to leave you with this quote. Education is learning what you didn't even know you didn't know. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the video, finally. My question for you guys is, what element of society do you personally feel is most important to tackle? And with all that said and done, my name's Dale, this is ThinkBack, and remember, never stop learning and thinking. Thanks for watching. If you guys enjoyed this video, please give it a like. It would really help me out. And feel free to check out some of my other content over the facts and thoughts that almost everybody missed. Have a good one. Okay, so if you listened to the previous segment, we are not humans quite yet. We are animals striving to attain our humanity. We have to understand this. We have to embrace this. And the thing is, is technology is humanity's birthright. From our early technology onwards, we have exponentiated ourselves, our abilities, and our potential. And think about the current discoveries in psychology and human behavior. I mean, I think it is awesome that most of our feelings are connected to bullshit. In other words, most of our feelings are not connected to the things that we think that they're connected to. Fact. We even know that the situation that we're in is due to our consent being engineered. And of course, this all happened during the Industrial Revolution. And more and more people are starting to understand the profound value in meditation, especially the standing meditation from Wing Chun called Siwum Tao. And this is not the same as Chinese herbs or acupuncture. These are all things that work on the placebo effect to varying degrees. Now the good news is that as humans or potential humans, we really only have one job right now. All of us have the same damn job. And that is to get centered, to be centered. To understand what center is. To understand how to center oneself. To be physically and even more importantly, 
intellectually balanced. Again, Wing Chun Siwam Tao is phenomenal for this. And in my over 50 years of living, I have not found anything that compares. As technology advances and more and more human jobs will become obsolete, more and more people will become artists. And as a Wing Chun martial artist, your life is the art. Your life is the medium. Thanks for listening. Integrity Radio. Every human used to have to hunt or gather to survive, but humans are smartly lazy, so we made tools to make our work easier. From sticks to plows to tractors, we've gone from everyone needing to make food to modern agriculture with almost no one needing to make food. And yet, we still have abundance. Of course, it's not just farming, it's everything. We've spent the last several thousand years building tools to reduce physical labor of all kinds. These are mechanical muscles, stronger, more reliable, and more tireless than human muscles ever could be. And that's a good thing. Replacing human labor with mechanical muscles frees people to specialize, and that leaves everyone better off, even those still doing physical labor. This is how economies grow and standards of living rise. Some people have specialized to be programmers and engineers whose job is to build mechanical minds. Just as mechanical muscles made human labor less in demand, so are mechanical minds making human brain labor less in demand. This is an economic revolution. You may think we've been here before, but we haven't. This time is different. When you think of automation, you probably think of this. Giant, custom-built, expensive, efficient, but really dumb robots blind to the world and their own work. They were a scary kind of automation, but they haven't taken over the world because they're only cost-effective in narrow situations. But they're the old kind of automation. This is the new kind. Meet Baxter. Unlike these things which require skilled operators and technicians and millions of dollars, Baxter has vision and can learn what you want him to do by watching you do it, and he costs less than the average annual salary of a human worker. Unlike his older brothers, he isn't pre-programmed for one specific job. He can do whatever work is within the reach of his arms. Baxter is what might be thought of as a general purpose robot, and general purpose is a big deal. Think computers. They too start out as highly custom and highly expensive, but when cheap-ish general purpose computers appeared, they quickly became vital to everything. A general purpose computer can just as easily calculate change, or assign seats on an airplane, or play a game, or do anything just by swapping its software. And this huge demand for computers of all kinds is what makes them both more powerful and cheaper every year. Baxter today is the computer of the 1980s. He's not the apex, but the beginning. Even if Baxter is slow, his hourly cost is pennies worth of electricity, while his meat-based competition costs minimum wage. A tenth of the speed is still cost-effective when it's a hundredth the price. And while Baxter isn't as smart as some of the other things we will talk about, he's smart enough to take over many low-skilled jobs. And we've already seen how dumber robots than Baxter can replace jobs. In new supermarkets, what used to be 30 humans is now one human overseeing 30 cashier robots. Or take the hundreds of thousands of baristas employed worldwide. There's a barista robot coming for them. Sure, maybe your guy makes the double mocha whatever just perfect and you'd never trust anyone else, but millions of people don't care and just want a decent cup of coffee. Oh, and by the way, this robot is actually a giant network of robots that remembers who you are and how you like your coffee no matter where you are. Pretty convenient. We think of technological change as the fancy new expensive stuff, but the real change comes from last decade stuff getting cheaper and faster. That's what's happening to robots now. And because their mechanical minds are capable of decision-making, they are out-competing humans for jobs in a way no pure mechanical muscle ever could. Imagine a pair of horses in the early 1900s talking about technology. One worries all these new mechanical muscles will make horses unnecessary. The other reminds him that everything so far has made their lives easier. Remember all that farm work? Remember running from coast to coast delivering mail? Remember riding into battle? All terrible. These new city jobs are pretty cushy, and with so many humans in the cities, there will be more jobs for horses than ever. Even if this car thingy takes off, he might say, there will be new jobs for horses we can't imagine. But you, dear viewer, from beyond 2000, know what happened. There are still working horses, but nothing like before. 
The horse population peaked in 1915. From that point on, it was nothing but down. There isn't a rule of economics that says better technology makes more better jobs for horses. It sounds shockingly dumb to even say that out loud. But swap horses for humans, and suddenly people think it sounds about right. As mechanical muscles pushed horses out of the economy, mechanical minds will do the same to humans. Not immediately, not everywhere, but in large enough numbers and soon enough that it's going to be a huge problem if we're not prepared. And we're not prepared. You, like the second horse, may look at the state of technology now and think it can't possibly replace your job. But technology gets better, cheaper, and faster at a rate biology can't match. Just as the car was the beginning of the end for the horse, so now does the car show us the shape of things to come. Self-driving cars aren't the future. They're here and they work. Self-driving cars have traveled hundreds of thousands of miles up and down the California coast and through cities, all without human intervention. The question is not if they'll replace cars, but how quickly. They don't need to be perfect. They just need to be better than us. Human drivers, by the way, kill 40,000 people a year with cars just in the United States. Given that self-driving cars don't blink, don't text while driving, don't get sleepy or stupid, it's easy to see them being better than humans because they already are. Now, to describe self-driving cars as cars at all is like calling the first cars mechanical horses. Cars in all their forms are so much more than horses that using the name limits your thinking about what they can even do. Let's call self-driving cars what they really are: autos, the solution to the transport objects from point A to point B problem. Traditional cars happen to be human-sized to transport humans, but tiny autos can work in warehouses, and gigantic autos can work in pit mines. Moving stuff around is who knows how many jobs, but the transportation industry in the United States employs about three million people. Extrapolating worldwide, that's something like seventy million jobs at a minimum. These jobs are over. The usual argument is that the unions will prevent it, but history is filled with workers who fought technology that would replace them, and the workers always lose. Economics always wins, and there are huge incentives across wildly diverse industries to adopt autos. For many transportation companies, humans are about a third their total costs. That's just the straight salaries. Humans sleeping in their long-haul trucks cost time and money. Accidents cost money. Carelessness costs money. If you think insurance companies will be against it, guess what? Their perfect driver is one who pays their small premiums and never gets into an accident. The autos are coming, and they're the first place where most people will really see the robots changing society. But there are many other places in the economy where the same thing is happening, just less visibly. So it goes with autos. So it goes for everything. It's easy to look at autos and Baxters and think technology has always gotten rid of low-skilled jobs we don't want people doing anyway. They'll get more skilled and do better-educated jobs like they've always done. Even ignoring the problem of pushing a hundred million additional people through higher education, white-collar work is no safe haven either. If your job is sitting in front of a screen and typing and clicking, like maybe you're supposed to be doing right now, the bots are coming for you too, buddy. Software bots are both intangible and way faster and cheaper than physical robots. Given that white-collar workers are, from a company's perspective, both more expensive and more numerous, the incentive to automate their work is greater than low-skilled work. And that's just what automation engineers are for. These are skilled programmers whose entire job is to replace your job with a software bot. You may think even the world's smartest automation engineer could never make a bot to do your job, and you may be right. But the cutting edge of programming isn't super smart programmers writing bots; it's super smart programmers writing bots that teach themselves how to do things the programmer could never teach them to do. How that works is well beyond the scope of this video, but the bottom line is there are limited ways to show a bot a bunch of stuff to do, show the bot a bunch of correctly done stuff, and it can figure out how to do the job to be done. Even with just a goal and no knowledge of how to do it, the bots can still learn. Take the stock market, which in many ways is no longer a human endeavor. It's mostly bots that taught themselves to trade stocks, trading stocks with other bots that taught themselves. As a result, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange isn't filled with traders doing their day jobs anymore. It's largely a TV set. So bots have learned the market, and bots have learned to write. If you've picked up a newspaper lately, you've probably already read a story written by a bot. There are companies that teach bots to write anything—sports stories, TPS reports, even say those quarterly reports that you write at work. Paperwork, decision making, writing—a lot of human work falls into that category, and the demand for human mental labor in these areas is on the way down. 
But surely the professions are still safe from bots, yes? When you think lawyer, it's easy to think of trials, but the bulk of lawyering is actually drafting legal documents, predicting the likely outcome and impact of lawsuits, and something called discovery, which is where boxes of paperwork gets dumped on the lawyers and they need to find the pattern or the one out-of-place transaction among it all. This can be bot work. Discovery, in particular, is already not a human job in many law firms. Not because there isn't paperwork to go through, there's more of it than ever, but because clever research bots shift through millions of emails and memos and accounts in hours, not weeks, crushing human researchers in terms of not just cost and time, but most importantly, accuracy. Bots don't get sleepy reading through a million emails. But that's the simple stuff. IBM has a bot named Watson. You may have seen him on TV destroy humans at Jeopardy, but that was just a fun side project for him. Watson's day job is to be the best doctor in the world, to understand what people say in their own words and give back accurate diagnoses. He's already doing that at Sloan Kettering, giving guidance on lung cancer treatments. Just as autos don't need to be perfect, they just need to make fewer mistakes than humans, the same goes for doctor bots. Human doctors are by no means perfect. The frequency and severity of misdiagnoses are terrifying, and human doctors are severely limited in dealing with a human's complicated medical history. Understanding every drug and every drug's interaction with every other drug is beyond the scope of human knowability. Especially when there are research robots whose whole job it is to test thousands of new drugs at a time. And human doctors can only improve through their own experiences. Doctor bots can learn from the experience of every doctor bot, can read the latest in medical research and keep track of everything that happens to all their patients worldwide and make correlations that would be impossible to find otherwise. Not all doctors will go away, but when the doctor bots are comparable to humans and they're only as far away as your phone, the need for general doctors will be less. So professionals, white-collar workers, and low-skill workers all have things to worry about from automation. But perhaps you are unfazed because you're a special creative snowflake. Well, guess what? You're not that special. Creativity may feel like magic, but it isn't. The brain is a complicated machine, perhaps the most complicated machine in the whole universe, but that hasn't stopped us from trying to simulate it. There is this notion that just as mechanical muscles allowed us to move into thinking jobs, that mechanical minds will allow us to move into creative work. But even if we assume the human mind is magically creative, it's not, but just for the sake of argument, artistic creativity isn't what the majority of jobs depend on. The number of writers and poets and directors and actors and artists who actually make a living doing their work is a tiny, tiny portion of the labor force. And given that these are professions dependent on popularity, they'll always be a very small portion of the population. There can't be such a thing as a poem and painting-based economy. Oh, by the way, this music in the background that you're listening to, it was written by a bot. Her name is Emily Howell, and she can write an infinite amount of new music all day for free. And people can't tell the difference between her and human composers when put to a blind test. Talking about artificial creativity gets weird fast. What does that even mean? But nonetheless, it's a developing field. People used to think that playing chess was a uniquely creative human skill that machines could never do, right up until the point they beat the best of us. And so it will go for all human talents. Right, this may have been a lot to take in, and you might want to reject it. It's easy to be cynical of the endless and idiotic predictions of futures that never are. So that's why it's important to emphasize again that this stuff isn't science fiction. The robots are here right now. There is a terrifying amount of working automation in labs and warehouses around the world. We have been through economic revolutions before, but the robot revolution is different. Horses aren't unemployed now because they got lazy as a species, they're unemployable. There's little work that a horse can do to pay for its housing and hay. And many bright, perfectly capable humans will find themselves the new horse, unemployable through no fault of their own. But if you still think new jobs will save us, here is one final point to consider. The US Census in 1776 tracked only a few kinds of jobs. Now, there are hundreds of kinds of jobs, but the new ones are not a significant part of the labor force. Here's the list of jobs ranked by the number of people who perform them. It's a sobering list with the transportation industry at the top. Continuing downward, all of this 
work existed in some form a hundred years ago, and almost all of them are easy targets for automation. Only when we get to number 33 on the list is there finally something new. Don't think that every barista or white-collar worker need lose their job before things are a problem. The unemployment rate during the Great Depression was 25%. The list above is 45% of the workforce. Just what we've talked about today, the stuff that already works, can push us over that number pretty soon. And given that even in our modern technological wonderland, new kinds of work aren't a significant portion of the economy, this is a big problem. This video isn't about how automation is bad, rather that automation is inevitable. It's a tool to produce abundance for little effort. We need to start thinking now about what to do when large sections of the population are unemployable through no fault of their own. What to do in a future where, for most jobs, humans need not apply. time when being a few standard deviations above the mean in intelligence didn't get you very much when you're just plowing the field alongside your neighbors. But now you can start a software company or a hedge fund. Okay, and this leads to astonishing levels of wealth inequality and cultural isolation. This is a theme that Murray has returned to in his other work and in a more recent book, Coming Apart, which we also discuss. Now, Unfortunately for Murray, what we have here is a set of nested taboos. Human intelligence itself is a taboo topic. People don't want to hear that intelligence is a real thing, and that some people have more of it than others. They don't want to hear that IQ tests really measure it. They don't want to hear that differences in IQ matter, because they're highly predictive of differential success in life, and not just for things like educational attainment and wealth but for things like out-of-wedlock birth and mortality. People don't want to hear that a person's intelligence is in large measure due to his or her genes, and that there seems to be very little we can do environmentally to increase a person's intelligence, even in childhood. It's not that the environment doesn't matter, but genes appear to be 50 to 80% of the story. People don't want to hear this, and they certainly don't want to hear that average IQ differs across races and ethnic groups. Now, for better or worse, these are all facts. In fact, there is almost nothing in psychological science for which there is more evidence than these claims. About IQ, about the validity of testing for it, about its importance in the real world, about its heritability, and about its differential expression in different populations. Again, this is what a dispassionate look at decades of research suggests. Whatever the difference in average IQ is across groups, you know nothing about a person's intelligence on the basis of his or her skin color. That is just a fact. There is much more variance among individuals in any racial group than there is between groups. So, besides being unethical and politically imprudent, it is totally irrational to treat people as anything other than individuals. Murray and Hernstein were absolutely clear about this in the bell curve. So, what happened to Murray, as far as I can tell, has had nothing to do with errors of scholarship, of which, undoubtedly, there must be some, or for the way he's conducted himself since, or for his personal motives for discussing these topics in the first place. Rather, his scapegoating has been entirely the result of his having merely discussed differences in human intelligence at all. Now, it's certainly true that the definitions of both intelligence and race are open for debate, to some degree. And there can be cultural influences in the concepts we use that we don't totally understand. But the efforts to invalidate the very notions of general intelligence and race have been wholly unconvincing from a psychometric and biological point of view and are obviously motivated by a political discomfort in talking about these things on points about which there is virtually no scientific controversy. I would say the biggest problem facing humanity is nine seconds. That's right, nine seconds is the average attention span 
And of course, the problem is, is you cannot explain great complexity in nine seconds. Hell, this segment took 20 seconds. Man, I have got to sing the praises of Sweetwater Music. That's sweetwatermusic.com. If you are into music or you know somebody that's into music, just send them to Sweetwater. It's amazing, man. These people do such great business. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think if more businesses, no matter what it is that you do, can be and behave uh, like Sweetwater, um, man, how awesome of a world would it be? Sweetwater.com. Awesome. Hell, even if you're not a musician, just go to Sweetwater.com and buy something and see how awesome it is. I'll make it easy for you. Just click the link on the title. I didn't know this until, well, a couple years ago, but did you know that your dog needs eye protection just as much as we do? Yeah, they need it from the sun and uh, debris and, well, most of all, from the fashion police. Well, that's why my wife, Ronnie, invented doggles. So go check them out. The link is in the title. Pick your pooch up a pair of doggles. And be sure to let the folks at the warehouse know that Integrity Radio sent you. Hi, this is Dr. New here. I think that you're quite correct. It's, it's harder the smarter you are um, n not to give in to the impulse to twist um, data to uh, fit your bias. Um, and it's uh, definitely a struggle um, when you, uh, it's hard to step outside your own subjectivity in order to understand what your bias is in the first place. So it's a constant struggle that um, makes um, it uh, very important, uh, but it makes it a very important struggle when you see um, how um, bias can really affect um, uh, what we understand as truth. So I uh, commend you for uh, <laughs> having that discussion. <laughs> Hello, freak bitches. Take precedent over the actual environment that we need to sustain ourselves. Well, let's not forget there are real human beings in coal country who, you know, have generations of, uh, have done, have spent generations working in this industry, take great pride in it, and uh, we've got to think about w what we do. Uh, but, it's, but it's only, uh, the, the yeah. numbers here are surprising and, and also a little reported. It's only 75,000 coal jobs we're talking about in the country. And there's something like 500,000 clean tech jobs just in California alone. I mean, the numbers are completely out of whack. No, I, I think I think the, the clean tech te um, uh, industry offers an enormous amount of promise. But 75,000 families is not nothing. And when we're right, talking right, but, about... But then give them money. Right, right it's like, but they like don't that, want right. to hand out. Oh, you know, they want to work. This goes to the question of meaning and, yes, you know, how, yes, you know like, what are absolutely. we going to do? Because we're, we're the precipice we're getting to is everyone, virtually everyone, is going to be in the position of these coal miners. When, right. when, we're, when we're talking about, and that, this, that's a good thing. That's the thing. I mean, that's, a, that, that's the, you know, why can't they figure out that they just want to learn new languages and, and spend more time with their kids and play Frisbee and, and uh, have fun? We need a new ethic that and politics that decouples a person's claim on existence from doing profitable work that someone will pay you for because such a an, lot of that work is going away could I, I mean we could view it as an opportunity and it is actually something it, it does dovetail with this hobby horse that you and i have been on for a while about about um kind of uh, about the power of meditation and what it can do uh to a human mind and the way you view the world and your role in it, for sure. Well, what are your thoughts on universal basic income? Because bring, bring it back to that, with this rise of the machines, if we do have things automated, I mean, some ridiculous number of people make their living driving cars mm. and driving trucks. Now, when yeah. that when those jobs are gone, I, I think it's millions of people, right? Yeah, Isn't it? no, it, and it's, I think it is the, in the States, it's the most... Uh, common job for white men, I think. I think uh, something like like nine million white men are driving trucks and cars. I mean, the so problem like, with that is most people are like fuck white men. Yeah, yeah. well, tired but, of white men. But, but yeah, patriarchy. This is this is <laughs> you know Trump's base. Yeah. Um, no, it's 
these, uh, I think, universal basic income. There, there are reasons to worry that it's not a perfect solution because you do want, you want to incentivize the things you want to incentivize. You, you need to just understand the consequences of of any system you would put in place. But there's just no question that in the that viewed as an opportunity, this is. I mean, this is the greatest opportunity in human history. We're talking about canceling the need for dangerous, boring, repetitive work and freeing up humanity to do interesting, creative, fun things. Now, how could that be bad? Well, give us a little time and we'll show you how we can make it bad. Mm-hmm. But And it'll, it'll be bad if it leads to just you know extraordinary wealth inequality that we have, we don't have the political or ethical will to to fix, um, and because if we have a culture of people who think I don't want any handouts, and I certainly don't want my neighbor to get any handouts, and I don't want to pay any taxes so that he get he can be a lazy bum, if that's the if we have this, you know, hangover from from uh, uh, Calvinism, you know, that uh, makes it impossible to talk creatively and reasonably about what has changed. Yeah, it could be a very painful bottleneck we have to pass through until we get to something that is that is um, much better or a hell of a lot worse, depending on on where the technology goes. And I think at a certain point, the the wealth inequality will be obviously unsustainable. I mean, you can't have multiple trillionaires walking around, living in compounds with razor wire, uh, and just moving everywhere with by you know by private jet. Um, and then, you know, massive levels of unemployment in a society like ours. I mean, at a certain point, where the richest people will realize that enough is enough. We have to spread this wealth because otherwise, people are just going to show up at our compounds with with you know, their AR-15s or their pitchforks, and you know, the, the society will, will will not sustain it. I mean, you can't you. There, there, there has to be some level of wealth inequality that is unsustainable that mm. people people will not tolerate, um, and you you begin to look more and more like a banana republic until you become a banana republic. But now we're talking about you know the, the U.S. or or the the developed world where um, all the wealth is. Uh, so redistribution is the end game. We and that's that, but that's a toxic concept for half of the country right now. Right, the idea of the welfare state, the, the idea the, of perpetuating that and, and yeah. spreading it across the board. Yeah, but th- these are – so, yeah, I mean, the, whatever the solution is for coal mining, we should not be hostage – for the coal miners, we should not be hostage to the idea that they need jobs so that whatever job they were doing and, and are still qualified to do, that job has to continue to exist – no matter what, no matter what the environmental consequences, no matter what the health consequences, no matter how it closes the door to good things that we we want, we don't do that with anything. We didn't do that with you know the people who are making buggy whips or or anything or else. Slavery, yeah, or yeah. I mean, there's just there's no. Um, at a certain point, we move on and we make progress, and we don't let that progress get rolled back. And when you're talking about uh, Developing technology that produces energy that doesn't have any of these negative effects, um, you know, whether it's global uh, climate change or just pollution, of course we have to move in that direction. And the, and the other thing that's that's crazy is that we're not talking honestly about how the, the dirty tech is subsidized. I mean, you have the oil people say, well. Solar is all subsidized, right? This is, you know, it's just it's a government handout that's giving us the solar industry. Well, one, that's not even a – you have to produce an argument as to why that's a bad thing. We, this is something we should want the government to do. The government needs to incentivize new industries that the market can't incentivize now if they are industries that are just intrinsically good and, and are going to lead to the betterment of, of humanity. But – Carbon is massively subsidized. We, ha- we, ha- we don't have, I mean, if, if we actually had the, the, the coal producers um, and, the, and the petroleum producers pay for the consequences of, car- of carbon uh, and pollution, it would, be, it would be much more expensive than it is, right? So it's already subsidized. 
you know we do it so we should i mean we 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 need a carbon tax clearly we need to I mean, the tax code should incentivize what we want to incentivize <laughs> My mental download, medicine remix, everybody out there in Anchor, everybody out there on iTunes and Spotify. Be sure to favorite. Be sure to like. Be sure to share. Just did a couple of paintings, and uh, one's called Samurai Kiss, and the other is Abstraction Ten. One three one seven. I I think that's the right number. Might have the number wrong, but there's a link to the title if you want to check them out. I'm really satisfied. I guess would be a good word. Excited, satisfied about today's segments. I think today's segments were huge in uh, conveying. Um, not just my message, but pretty much all of our message. Uh, everything that we're all trying to say, I think, was said very well. <laughs> not by me, but um, by some eloquent thinker, speaker. Um, so if you didn't hear it, swipe on back and check it out. All right. Enjoy. Integrity Radio. <laughs> 